Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. Well, good afternoon and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. This is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, your co-hosts. And today with us, we have a special guest. And Emmy, we had so much great conversation before the show that I forgot to get the pronunciation of your last name that I knew I needed to get before we jumped in. So is it Sobieski? Sobieski. It's completely phonetic. Oh, Sobieski. Well, I would not have guessed. Perfect. Wonderful. So we have special guest Emmy Sobieski with us on the show today. And thank you so much for joining us on the Money Advantage podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So let's just give a little bit of background information about what we are covering and discussing today. So Emmy has written a book that is a best-selling book called 100 Million Careers. And so we're going to be discussing that book and just really her background and her history leading up to her ability to write such a book that would help somebody to understand what is the path to having very high-level careers. So we're going to just discuss, I'm, I want to share her bio as we get started in this conversation today. So Emmy Sobieski is CFA, a CBP. She combines 25 years of experience in the public and private companies with the experience of leading, scaling, and advising startups. She's the Amazon number one best-selling author of 100 Million Careers, and here's the full title, The Five Fastest Paths to Wealth Beyond Your Wildest Dreams. Looks like you published last year in 2022. She's also a fractional um, chief operating officer of competitive storytelling, helping world-class founders share ideas and change the world. Emmy co-ran the Nicholas Applegate Technology Fund, the number one ranked fund globally in 1999, up over 492%, according to Lipper. Emmy has worked in executive founder and advisory roles at Web3, FinTech, GreenTech, private equity, and hedge fund startups. So a lot of fantastic background that you're bringing to the table today. So what are we discussing? We're talking about whether you are a listener of the show and you are an entrepreneur or whether you are in a career path, you have desires and ambitions to create monetary wealth as well as wealth that is all five forms of capital, your social, your your spiritual capital, your relationship capital, your intellectual capital. But today we're specifically focusing on if you wanted to follow a career path, there is a proven path to do that. And there are over 25,000 self-made $100 million families in the US. And if you know the common background and the common storyline, you can figure out how to operate in that capacity yourself. And so Emmy is going to be talking about that with us today. Bruce, I wanted to ask you to just share your thoughts as we're jumping into this conversation that is unique a little bit on this show, because we don't usually talk about jobs or career paths. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, why, why it does tie into our audience is that in order to get into these jobs or career paths, you, you do really need to think entrepreneurially, you know, and, how, and the best way to actually achieve these is actually to invest in yourself. And we bring that point up a lot on the show. And a lot of people are, are always like, you know, uh, what's the secret to doing this? What's the secret to doing that? And they always forget the, the secret may be to make you the best version of yourself as uh, that you possibly can make and not just stop once you think you know something. 
the 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 rocket ship is going to take off when you realize that you're never going to know everything possible to know. It's it's what you learn after you know everything is what really makes the rocket ship take off. And I, and I'm being a little silly there, but that's the truth. You know, when a person really feel, figures out that they don't know everything and they continue to be a lifelong learner, that's when uh, things take off not only in your your financial life, but in your personal life, both uh, uh, the relationship you have with yourself and also the relationship you have with other people. Absolutely. Yes. I, I, I talk about it often where I say, you've got to moonshot your career. Too many people underestimate their own potential. And they think you, and myself included, I thought, well, I, I want to I want to run a fund. There's only 4% of women even being analysts in technology on the buy side. So, I mean, only 4% of analysts on the buy side are women. So I thought that was like amazing to even get in. And I thought it was a real moonshot to be able to run a fund. I didn't have an ambition to run the number one fund. And so, so I would continually beat these ambitions that I had that I thought were big ambitions. And then you go through this lull period because you're not, the way I like to think of it is you've got to moonshot your career. You've got to moonshot your goals. And then you've got to have milestones that are doable that you celebrate on the way so you don't feel like you're always failing or something like that. But I can just tell you time and time again, people that I've met, and it's so hard to re-energize yourself for the next goal and to build the next goal. And you can waste years or a decade just kind of being in this depressed state because you've reached, you know, you've arrived. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so fascinating. I think there's a, a component of something called the arrival syndrome that Bruce was talking about a little bit as well, where people think that they have all the answers. But sometimes you have arrived and you have arrived at the spot that you thought was going to bring you everything that you wanted. And then you realize there's still something more. So, Emmy, this is just so fascinating to even hear that piece of your background. When did you decide that you wanted to create a very high profile career? And tell us a little bit of your backstory personally that led you to where you are today. I never, I never decided. This is one of the reasons I wrote my book is, look, if you have any kind of a plan early, you can do so much more than I ever did. Mm. (laughs) So here's the, here's the math because so, um, so I started investing, my dad and I started out and this is in the late seventies. So that kind of dates me, but um, we would go around and go through our neighbor's trash and pick out aluminum cans. And at the time, the U.S. government had a program in the late 70s where they were paying a lot of money to you to recycle aluminum cans. They're trying to get people into recycling. So I had, by the, t- you know, I had a couple of like checks from people for birthdays that I'd saved up. But the bulk of my savings by the time I was 16 was from recycling aluminum cans. And so I had $1,800. And my dad says to me, now you're 16, you can have your own stock brokerage account, and it's time to start investing. And so here are four companies, and you can pick one. So I picked between the four companies he gave me. One was United Artists, and you know, teenager, United Artists, and they had they were the first movie theater 
theater come up with the idea to give you more than just popcorn, give you mm. candy and soda. So their earnings went through the roof and they got bought out in four or five months. And of course, I'm a teenager. I'm thinking candy sounds great. So I invested in that company. <laughs> Not real high tech investing at the time. And um, but quadrupled my money. So now I'm sitting around with seventy five hundred ish, you know, a little less. And um and then my dad gives me a couple other companies for to pick from. And one of them, he said, oh, you know, this guy's my friend and he's figured out how to make Medicare, Medicaid profitable. Um, and, you know, it's a little tiny company, but he, my dad said, I think it'll really grow. And that was FHP, which is now, you know, this massive healthcare company. And so I thought that sounded cool also because my dad knew the guy. Um, I thought it was a good growth. So I put the entire 7,500 into that. Um, and then that quadrupled. And so then I'm sitting at around 30,000. And my dad's, I was like, you know, I'm kind of bored with this company. I've, I've quadrupled my money. More people are getting to know about the story. So I don't really know that there's, you know, I want it. And, and right around that same time, my dad came back from a board meeting and he said, you know what? One of the other board members, his son joined this really interesting company called Novell. And uh, I was like, all right, tell me about it. And he said, it allows, this is before the, you know, before there was a World Wide Web. The internet has been around since the 60s, but before the World Wide Web where people like you and I could access the internet. Um, and this, this software allows computers in an office to talk to each other. And I thought, well, that sounds super cool. And the other ideas my dad had seemed more like mundane compared to that. So <laughs> I bought that and that went from $30,000 to $320,000. And uh, it was just an incredible rocket ship of a stock. And so I'm a sophomore in college, $320,000 in my stock account. And I do not recommend anyone listening do this because you don't want to put 100%. It's one thing to put 1800 but know 100 percent of your money in one stock and then keep doing it over and over the likelihood that you know it, i just i had a very unusual path i don't recommend you follow it but that was kind of so i was basically doing that then i thought well this is easy so i just outsource the investing to my dad and go to parties and enjoy myself and then um, my mother passed away and my dad and so i got more money from her so like half a million dollars kind of in my early 20s and um and i was just being a horse trainer and ignoring it and my because my mother had passed my dad was really you know stressed and mourning and he had this biotech stock and he kept putting more and more money into it and on margin all of this kind of stuff and you know look i outsourced it to him so it's completely on me but by the time uh my life mentor said to me i don't think horse training is your future. <laughs> but if you go to grad school and face all your opportunities and still want to be a horse trainer. Um, so I basically was a litigation peril, asbestos litigation paralegal, mm. which is just like representing the companies that killed all those people, you know, just terrible. And I did that because, you know, I did that and rode horses. I went in the junior Olympics in college. I wanted to try wow. for the Olympics. So I'm kind of doing that. Then I became a full-time horse trainer. And my horse trainer who trained all these people for the Olympics said, look, you're your mid twenties. When you're in your mid thirties, you won't have the same opportunities. So face all your, go to grad school at something, face all your opportunities. Um, so the two kind of delve together. There was a biotech stock market crash in specifically in biotech. And I, I was hundred percent in biotech um, mm -hmm. at the time. 
where I ended up going into entering grad school with negative $30,000 in my account because at the time the systems weren't computerized, the computers weren't fast enough to sell the stock to pay the margin as fast as the stock price was going down. <laughs> and so I ended up with negative $30,000 and I had a horse. And so I said, I think I could sell the horse. I sell the horse for 30,000. So now I'm in grad school. I've got 30,000 cash, 30,000 debt at the stock brokerage. My dad's, luckily my dad's pretty connected and his uh, fraternity brother from Stanford happened to own the brokerage firm. So I went into the guy and I said, look, can I trade 50% debt, 50% equity. I know that your brokerage wants only 30% debt, but I know that the exchange right now allows 50. So will you allow me to trade? The guy was living in an $80 million house. I think he was like, you know, I write the check to cover this if she screws it up and it's my, you know, friend's daughter. So he goes, sure. But of course, I think I'm completely badass. So that builds a lot of confidence in me that I went and talked to the head of the brokerage firm, blah, blah, blah. So I basically have 60K. I turn it into 120 by trading and it's literally 1992. It's, you know, you're coming out of the recession, all the small caps tech stocks have been left for dead and then they're going up by multiples every day. It was a perfect time for me to be investing in small cap tech. And um, so I took the 60K, turned it into 120, paid off the 30, have 90, did it in six months. And my friend that was at grad school, and I'm 26 by this time, she's like, you know, there's people that would pay you to do that. <laughs> and that was the first that I ever thought of having a career in investing. And, uh, mm. and five years later, I was running the number one fund in the world. That is fascinating. Oh, my goodness. What a I'm roller coaster. I'm, yeah, I'm exhausted just listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, A, you have to have a certain personality to be able to take that kind of risk and to trust people and stomach the fall that happened and then be able to say, well, now how do I get myself up from my bootstraps and how do I make something out of this? And I mean, what a whirlwind. So by age, I guess. And you got to learn not to do that when, you know, not to trade like that when you're trading institutional money, because you will not have a career that lasts very long. So mm -hmm. I, you know, there's like, you know, I had to take, I had to say to myself, okay, what in it, what are the traits I want to bring with me? And what are the ones that I need to leave behind? Right. So the traits you want to bring with you is my ability to pick a rocket ship of a stock. And the ones I want to leave behind is to put hundred percent of my money in something. Although that still, you know, I had various bosses who <laughs> we had various disagreements about my, my, uh, my risk, you know, the, the, where we were on the risk, risk levels. And uh, yeah, certain of my bosses uh, I may have added about 10 years to their lives. Or, or subtracted. Imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Right. I aged so, them. <laughs> so tell me this then. So at this point, you're saying you're probably about 31 and you are probably younger than most people could ever imagine being in a position of running the number one largest hedge fund. And uh, so it was not a hedge fund. It was oh, a long okay. only fund. It was a long only fund and it was number one okay. in performance, but it wasn't the largest. It was we it was about a half a billion dollars at the time. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you're standing in this position and you're now very happy with your success or are you starting to feel stressed? Are you starting to feel that it's not really what you wanted it to be? What, is, what are your feelings as you're there? So what was interesting is that 
my boss at the at, at Nicholas Applegate, Catherine. Now her name is Catherine Nicholas, but um, it she is an amazing person because most people that have really big performance, like the number one fund, like I did, are actually around twenty seven to thirty two. Because once you go through a couple of market cycles, you start you start hedging and you start you won't take enough risk to to be number one. And she is highly unusual in that even in her 50s, even through all these market cycles, if she sees an opportunity, she goes in full bore. And so she was my boss. And she said to me, I don't care what it takes, you know, obviously have to follow the rules, but I want you to be number one. And to do that, I basically had 80 and I had a diversified fund. So I had over 100 holdings. So to do that, I had to turn over the fund fairly aggressively to be in the top two, basically the top. I had to guess ahead of time what were going to be the two top performing sectors and then be in them with 85, you know, like number one, 85 percent of the money and number two. Uh, so it's kind of like the pick six, and, but you always make sure in racing that you get number one and number two, and then you do it every quarter in a row. And then you turn over the whole portfolio. That was the only way I could think of with such a diversified portfolio to still become number one. And so the net of it is in terms of how I was feeling is that my I was just heads down, like what's next, what's next, what's the next stock? How, you know, do I have the right portfolio going forward? I didn't have to worry about turnover because she didn't care and our clients didn't care. Um, but the rest of it, it was, it was just work every day to do my best and keep my keep keep humble because the market will always destroy you if you're not humble. So that was kind of my mindset. And then I started getting interviewed, obviously, Wall Street Journal, Barron's, and Barron's did this big piece where um, they they were like, well, aren't you at cocktail parties bragging about the fact that you're up? I mean, from from inception, my first 12 months was up 620 or 630%. So aren't you at cocktail parties? And so finally, they kept pushing about, aren't you out there bragging? Aren't you, out, you know, aren't you getting like complacent? I'm like, dude, every day I'm just doing what I do. I get up, I do this. And so finally I got frustrated and I said, I go to cocktail parties. I go to bed early. I'm on the West Coast. So of course, Barron's, they put that out as like a separate headline. And, and so I come into the office the next day and all the guys are like, I go to bed early. You know, they're all making fun of me. And then people around the office started calling me a tech guru. And to your point, I'm kind of looking at my, like, look, I've been doing this five years. I'm 31 years old. This is not healthy for me mm -hmm. to, to get in my mind that I'm some kind of guru. And so it, it, immediately when I self-awareness to be able to say that. And when I, thank you. And when I started hearing that, well, and I had kind of pushed my way up, right? I, I went to USC, nothing against USC, but it's not Stanford, Harvard, right? I, in undergrad, I had a 3.4 GPA. I mean, I barely got like a, or no, I had a 3.0 in general. And then I just got like a 3.499, so almost a 3.5 in my econ major. Th these are not stellar, you know, I was out riding horses and partying. I, I wasn't going to class in undergrad. So I just... 
because of that, I put myself so far behind that I was continually having to learn from interesting people and take interesting paths, like started an insurance company and then advanced through attrition because they pay so badly then, you know, and I could get them to let me manage money early, all these weird ways that when then people started calling me a guru, I had been kind of in the trenches working really hard in unusual ways to get where I'd gotten that when I heard that, I thought, oh, that is not, in, you know, that is not my path. And that is, you know, I am not one of the chosen ones. I did not go to Harvard or Stanford. I can't afford this. And, mm. uh, you know, and so then, so that really started me thinking, where do I need to be next? I need to be somewhere where I'm not the top dog. I need to be somewhere where I'm learning. And as luck would have it, my uh, review came up and I had made I made the head of the firm, he personally put 4 million in and I made him, you know, 6X in the first year. So I made him 24 million personally. And um, my salary at the time was 135,000. Uh, and then of course you had a bonus that was like 100% of salary. So I just wanted that to go up to clean 150. They're, they're you know, they're a mutual fund and I was an analyst. So I'm like, you know, that's fine. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask for a partner. I'm not gonna do anything crazy. And they wouldn't do it. They basically said, we paid you too much to come in and we're going to let other people's salaries catch up. I'm like, yeah, well, when is their performance going to catch up? So I go I go to some kind of a meeting, you know, with a friend of mine and she's like, how's it going? And I'm like, yeah, I'm a little pissed about this review. So I had these two thoughts in my head. I'm pissed about the review. I'm pissed that I didn't get, you know, $5,000. <laughs> Literally, they want to give me a $10,000 raise. I wanted a $15,000 raise. And I just made them $24 million personally and a lot more for the company itself. And uh, so I was pissed about that. And I was thinking I need to have some, I need to be in a situation where I'm the bottom person on the totem pole, not the top. And she said, that's really interesting because you, your background, you've done so well calling all these semi-cycles and we need someone to do that. And so then three weeks, I mean, a week later, I was talking to her boss and three weeks later, I moved to New York after I said I'd never moved to New York. <laughs> I moved to New York to work for the person that I believe is the smartest hedge fund manager that's ever lived. Uh, mm. Glenn, Glenn, Glenn Doshe. It was called Palantir Capital, which has nothing to do with Palantir Technologies. So fascinating. So as you're looking back, I mean, that's just a, a, I mean, transformational journey. I mean, you've, you've been through a lot. You've done a lot already. I'm sure that there's a lot more to the story, but let's just jump over into this idea that you now have created this book, 100 Million Careers. So you were in a investing strategy and an investing path that led you into a career path that then led you into growth in terms of saying, I need to not be the smartest person in the room. I need to be continually learning. And I don't like this review that I've gotten. How did that begin to pivot towards your story now of how you help people to really understand the process of people who have these self-made 100 million plus families. All our careers. Yeah. 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 Um, so after about 25 years as an institutional investor, I just, and I, along the way, starting in 2008, but individually, even before that, I had started mentoring students and, you know, on their careers and mostly students that were from diverse backgrounds that had gone to community college first or had a blue collar family or their parents hadn't graduated college, th that kind of thing. 
and help them understand their path to Wall Street and beyond. And a fair bit of them have created their own hedge funds, their own companies, and are multimillionaires by the age of 30. So I kind of had that just going on in the background. And for me personally, I, after working, after running the number one fund and then working at the number one, in my view, hedge fund, at the time it was a number one performing hedge fund, but different people will say different things because it's, where do you get the data? Where's the data? Yeah. What's objective? Yeah. What's but, objective? And he didn't, he didn't even have a website. <laughs> So he's not sharing any data with anybody. I can tell you as a number one fund. So uh, anyway, but after working there, I, I could have started my own hedge fund or, and it was 2003 when he shut down. And so I could have gone to Silicon Valley and joined Amazon, joined one of these tech companies and made that transition. So made that transition. I call it the three B's. You break in, which I had done. You build equity, which I had not done. I'd mostly worked as an analyst, although when Glenn paid very well. He paid as if we had equity. Um, and then and then, so it's break in, build equity, break out. And break out is to start your own thing. And I really should have done that right at that moment. And I didn't. And I took another 15 years. I kind of just got random jobs, working on the buy side, doing what I'd always done, even though I'd well proved that I could go to the next step. And eventually, after 25 years institutional investor, I said, I want to move blockchain. I got so excited, Web3 blockchain, I want to move over to corporate. And was told, you're too old for your level. Of, basically, you're too senior for your lack of experience. And so I built my own coaching company and, and just kind of learned learned marketing, learned all the things that I needed to learn by building my own little um, coaching company and, and created a bunch of courses. Once again, no great plan, but one of the courses I created is on investing at 60,000 words. It's everything I ever knew about investing. And a piece of it is on these five career paths. And that was the piece that I got so much positive feedback from. And then a friend of mine that I now work for, in the CEO of Competitive Storytelling, said, hey, Emmy, we should have a book. We should each have some, someone at our level should, should have a book out there. So I thought, well, that makes sense. I think I'll do it on this piece that keeps getting so much positive feedback. So I hired a writer to help me do it. And then at the end, which again, this is not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to come up with the title first and then write the book. But at the end, he's like, so what do you think the title is going to be? And I said, you know, almost all of my mentees have made it to this multiple millions by the age of 30, or a bunch of them have. And then I've got a bunch of friends that have made 100 million by the time they're 50. And this really is this story of the career paths that, they, that they've all taken. And it's kind of like step one, step two, right? Step one is when you're 30. If you hit here when you're 30 and you make the right plans, you'll hit this when you're 50. And uh, so I said, why not just call it $100 million careers? I love Alex Hormozzi's $100 million offers. And so that, you know, I wish I could say there was some grand plan, but it's more just kind of bumbling through life. And then some somebody that's smart says, hey, we should have a book. And I'm like, great. And then people started reading it and I thought this book I sent I had my assistant send six copies of this book to the career services of the top 40 MBA programs top 40 business undergrad programs and top 40 high schools that feed into those programs 
because I thought this is that's who this is for. 100% of the people that contact me for advice or to learn about more are mid-career and they're moving from breaking in to building equity and they want to know how to make that move. Hmm. So, you know, it's again, like you can write a book for one audience, but the audience is going to pick you. They're going to tell you, you know, what resonates. That is fascinating. I mean, I'm looking at this whole process from the entrepreneurial journey, I would say is maybe a little different where we see somebody with a big idea. Maybe they have worked for somebody, maybe they haven't. And then they're in a process of continually innovating. I mean, I think of the Russell Brunson's of the world who found a, a concern in the marketplace and created a, a solution to that and then marketed that. And there's a lot of uh, <clears throat> serendipity, if you will, or, you know, maybe he didn't necessarily have the path all the way mapped out before he started just like you. But when you're on the journey, you can't necessarily know where it's going to end up and you can't necessarily plan it. But if you're looking at people who have been successful, you're saying there is a map, there is a a process and a strategy. And you're saying the people who are looking to have you speak into their life in this area of how do I transition? How do I make this change? They're from breaking in, they're already successful in their career. And now they're looking to build equity. Can you explain what that difference is? And I'm thinking you're talking about ownership in the company that they've broken into ownership in the yes. industry. And even, yeah, even more broadly. So I will, I will call this cohort of people, the broke upper class, hmm. because they and maybe they're working at a large tech firm and they're making 300K, 250, 300K, but their expenses are going up. They got a second house. Their kids are in private school. <laughs> so they they just feel like there's a there's an earning treadmill and right behind it is the expense treadmill. And so they never feel like they're getting ahead and they're working really, really hard. So part of it is to, to move yourself over to getting salary plus shares or equity in the firm. But the other is a bigger mindset of becoming entrepreneurial about your entire life. So one of the very interesting things you can do is that if you move over into the startup ecosystem, and by the way, when you pick the startup that you're going to join from a large tech fund, understand that is the biggest investment you're going to make in your entire life because that's your time and you'll never get it back. You can always get money back. You can't get time back. And people you know, just jumped at the first startup and you want to you want to really do your research because this is the biggest investment. But then you're going to be in the startup ecosystem. And let's say you're in engineering or you're in product or something like that. You're going to have the opportunity to scout and then later become a part-time venture partner for a venture firm because they're going to say, hey, your feet on the ground, et cetera. And then let's say you grow the, let's say you're head of sales or something like that, and you are able to ramp a company from 50 million to 150 million in revenues. Now there's going to be boards that are going to want you to come on and show them how to get from 50 to 150 million. All of a sudden, you've got equity in a company you're not working at every day because you're on the board of directors. You have a piece of carry of a venture fund, and you're still working at a startup for equity. And so now you have this money flywheel going because you've moved over from the hours for your time into mm -hmm. this equity play field. Well, uh, you know, 
we kind of live in this world of helping entrepreneurs, you know, in their starting their own business too. Your yours is a little bit because you're working in the equity position that they may not have total control. And we work more with business owners that have already started a business and they have total control. So there's going to be personality differences in both of those. But does your book help to identify whether you're able to even handle this situation? And what are those some of the most characteristics to be able to handle those situations? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I talk about five, and there are many more. It, the, the idea of leverage is just one to many. So that can be uh, Taylor Swift as a musician or a, a movie actor, right? Any of those things are high leverage careers. And so you want to be in a high leverage career at the right time. The ones that I focus on are the ones I understand, which is hedge funds, private equity, venture capital, startups, and board directors. And, and then kind of those last three are the ones that make up that money flywheel. So for each one, in my book, I go through, okay, what is it? What's a day in the life? What is the career path and a day in the life at a hedge fund? Like what kind of personality do you need to have to do it? And then what if you break in and you just hate it, then what are your opportunities to move from there? So I definitely go through that. I, I believe that people are incredibly adaptable. And again, that their potential is far higher than they ever give themselves credit for. And so there is a huge transition. If you are, as you say, transitioning from having 100% control over your company to maybe wanting to give out equity and also maybe wanting to get a board, board position where you get equity and maybe wanting to be a venture scout where you get equity and kind of have a move from look, this is my company that I'm building to I have a portfolio approach that I just keep building different money streams that are that for this similar amount of time. It's a little more time, but mostly you're you're getting more strategic, you're getting more senior. And so you're giving advice for equity and it can be very outsized payments for a very small amount of your time. Um, so that but anyway, so I think when I look at people that are at a large tech fund and they're just getting this bigger and bigger salary every year, of course, with bonuses, et cetera. But it's really, you know, it's it's not the same thing as being at a startup. The biggest thing there is a lot of times, and I didn't realize it either, I had a feeling I was at Oppenheimer Funds and we were we were running $220 billion at the time. And just the funds that I was working on was 26 billion. I can tell you, I was the first call, any new ideas, anytime I want to talk to a management team, they're on the phone. I have every everyone's cell phone numbers. And you know, and you think, oh, this is going to be so easy. I'm going to go start a hedge fund and everyone's going to answer, everyone's going to be calling me with ideas. And it's like crickets, right? So mm -hmm. And so there's this, and then the second thing is, so there's this feeling when you are working at Amazon or at Google that everyone is there to help you and your network is so strong. And then you leave and you go to a startup and you realize a lot of that was where you were working and not how strong your network is. So that's a big thing. And then the second thing is um, to be able to just do what needs to get done without getting so in the weeds that you forget that you're a strategic thinker. So you need to say, okay, how do I balance 
being able to really bring my gifts to this startup, but also be willing to get down in the trenches with everybody and get something done. So, you know, that's, that's a huge, you know, that's a huge transition for people. Um, and then just giving up the security of, of having, you know, a massive paycheck because you're, you're switching. I, I forgot it was, so it's interesting. One VC said to me for the, for the C-suite, for the leaders of a tech company, they think of it in, in threes. So they think of it, if you're in the middle of the country where you're sal you know, where you don't need as much money, then you can make 10 K a month on there, which is, you know, which is 120 a year. If you are on either of the coasts, you can make 20 K a month. And if you are a superstar and it like an engineer that can't be hired, you could make 30 K a month. And so that that's kind of the threes of VC and all of those, or wherever, depending on your situation, maybe way less than you're used to making and you're giving up equity. And the stats are that most people never make that money back. They just make less money because you've got to pick the right startup. Well, so interesting. I think this aligns really well with Rabbi Lappin. We've had him on the show several times as well. <clears throat> He's published a great book called Thou Shall Prosper. And there's one idea that I just wanted to highlight and pinpoint because it's something that's really core and fundamental to what we believe and also what most of our tribe is on this path towards as well. And it's that you don't want to aim towards retirement because the more experience you have, the more um, intellectual equity that you've built up, you have more capability for higher influence and for really doing the most good for the most people. And that is where you're talking about the leverage. And so as you're able to then serve at a higher level, whether being on a board of directors or a partner, uh, joint ventures uh, or venture partner, you're in a position where you're now leaning on that experience and that knowledge that you've built up over time and all of the relationships and all of the other capital that you've built up in your life. Yeah, you're so, you're finally you're finally able to compound all of the work. And so don't stop mm. right when the compounding starts. Well, not, um, only, not, not, not only that, but because of your your intellectual property that you have in your brain and your credibility, you can also be, uh, dictate and control your time. And people will allow that because of your your intellect. Absolutely. In fact, a recent coaching client reached out to me, and and he had had several exits, so he's already worth tens of tens of millions of dollars. And he's trying to map out how do I get from there to a hundred million and do it differently, which is what I talk about from breaking in. He had read my book from breaking in, moving from breaking in to building equity, and he's like, how do I map that out? And one of the questions he asked me, he said, you know, you're unique because you've worked multiple years for a bunch of billionaires and there's only 724 in the US and you've had a decade of exposure to them and their minds and the way they work and he said what makes a happy billionaire and that's a, an amazing question yeah and i and and so even though my book is 100 million dollar careers i want people to be happy and successful when they hit the 100 million and beyond right i don't i don't want to have miserable rich people so I call it the three C's and it is, do you have control over your calendar, your confidence and your capital? 
because too many people get rich and then all of a sudden they've got houses all over the place and they're and they they become kind of a, a servant to their houses right they start working to make sure that they're every house they go to they're doing repairs or doing it themselves and they still run around i have friends that are worth a lot of money and they don't control their calendar which is really sad so they can't do things with the people they want to do it with and then the confidence really has to do with your relationship with money because if you still think you know if you have if you don't have a growth mindset and you still think it could run out at any moment you know you have this fear all of the time uh, then you're not in control you're not in control of your own confidence and your own ego and I think that when you have those three things, the three C's of control over your capital, your calendar, and your confidence, then you can, well, you can be happy at any age, but you can, money won't make you unhappy. Or happy. It's so fascinating. And I love that you're sharing that because there's this huge psychology beneath money that we could talk for hours and hours, I'm sure about, but if you don't have the right mindset, no amount of money is going to make you wealthy or happy or wealthy in your mind as well. It's just wealthy on, on paper. And nobody just wants to be wealthy on paper. You really want to live the life that is ideal, that you enjoy, that you thrive in, that is exuding happiness, that everyone wants to be around you because of the person that you are. And it's so interesting. So two things I wanted to point out. One is that um, abundance versus scarcity mindset. So there's this is a, a key piece of what we discussed too. You cannot be in a position of scarcity and scarcity can be fear on either side, fear of missing out. So you have to spend the money or fear of, um, of running out of money. So you have to keep all the money. So either position, unfortunately, we see people who are very successful financially on paper who have that scarcity that's running their life. They're not in that abundance state where they know that they can create new money wherever they are. They can give, they can create new things. They have infinite capacity and unlimited capacity in their mind to be able to do great things. And so I love that you're touching on that with the growth mindset. Carol Dweck is uh, amazing when she- And then something that feeds right off of that is positive serendipity. And I'll tell you a recent story. and, And I say- people are like, what is our partnership strategy? Who are we going to go after? And things like that. And like, come to us, which nobody really likes to hear that strategy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I live in Wellington, which is kind of the Disneyland of horses. So, uh, you know, Michael Bloomberg's daughter rides here, Bruce Springsteen's daughter, Bill mm-hmm. Gates's daughter, right? It's, it's the who's who. And so I, I just, go to the gym I go to the VIP tents and this guy walks up to me and he's like uh, he's, he sees me in the VIP tent and he says oh you know I've seen you at the gym um, I'm old enough that that's no, no longer a pickup line <laughs> uh, and and uh, and he said what is it you do and I tell him I'm the COO of competitive storytelling and he said oh that's interesting I work at JP Morgan and partnership talks start Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm of the firm belief that if you now, obviously, if you just go sit on a beach and don't do any work, life isn't going to come your way. But if you do good, hard work and you have this growth open mindset and you're open to positive serendipity, positive serendipity will come to you even more. So I was talking to a friend of mine about this just today because so few people believe in it. So then they're closed to it. So mm-hmm. then the positive things are going to come to you more because you're one of the few that's open to it. Ah, so good. 
That's so good. I love it. So there's so much more ground that we could cover and we're going to have to get close to wrapping up here. So what would you say is um, the biggest mistakes that you see people making in terms of their career path, in terms of not reaching what their potential is? Two, two things, and they are related. Number one is they do not moonshot their career. People do underestimate their capacity time and time again. Um, and, uh, and so that's number one. And number two is not taking enough big risks early. Mm-hmm. Now, big risks are not blind risks. They are calculated risks. This is where I'm saying move over. You know, I should have moved over in 2003. I looked, I could have looked at all the stuff, all the tech stocks. I remember looking at them and they were all trading at less than the cash on their balance sheets. So that was the time to move over into tech and get equity in some of those companies, right? Get equity in Amazon, et cetera. So take, so you have to calculate the risk. You've got to find the right company to invest your time in. But taking big risks earlier in your career is is a huge one. And then also and tied right to that is that you've got to moonshot your career and then you can have milestones that are achievable and celebratable. But you've got to moonshot your career and your life, honestly. Bruce, that reminds me a lot of Dan Sullivan. Are you familiar with Dan Sullivan? Mm-hmm. Emmy. <clears throat> and he talks about having this long, I believe it's a 30-year vision, and you break it down into all the way down to 90 day increments of what you're going to actually do. And the point is, I think he's in his late seventies. He's definitely yes, up there. Yes. He just had a, as a matter of fact, he just had a birthday. Okay. So I know he's at least in his seventies somewhere in there. He's going, he's going to live. He's going to live to be 130. That's what he keeps telling people. That's awesome. And I love that he has a vision that's going to lead him out to that age as well. He's not slowing down in any capacity because he has this, long-term, long-reaching, long-range moonshot idea and goal for his life. And then he's breaking that into things that are doable. And so I just love how aligned that is with your philosophy as well. So, so much valuable content. Bruce, is there any questions that you have before I kind of bring us to how they can find out more? Well, I I mean, I have, but it's going to take a long time to unwrap. So maybe we'll just have to do this at another another show, but I want to thank you, Emmy, for coming on and sharing all this with us. Um, I think it's really important that people understand because the coaching climate has kind of skyrocketed in the last decade or so. And that's nothing new that used, used to not go on next to the water cooler, you know, coaching your younger people or coaching people in in another branch of your area, but now people are seeing the value of getting that equity, that intellectual equity from people, and frankly, emotional equity from people too, as they they go through their career. So it's a very valuable thing to be talking about. Thank you. Thank you. I love love doing it. And you're so you're so right. One of my most successful mentees, who I'm not even allowed to mention because of where he works, I'm not allowed to give his name out. But um, his his parents were blue collar, had not graduated college, and he asked me. He said, "I think I'm going to go for management consulting because there's more jobs." And 
he was a freshman in college and I had had him in my little investing group that we were, you know, and I made, made them all. I just gave them random ticker ticker symbols or gave them various assignments. And he was doing the work of somebody that had been at a hedge fund for five years and he's a freshman in college. He was so brilliant. And I said, forget it. Take 100% of your effort and put it towards Wall Street and you will be successful. And and he did. I mean, all credit to him with with absolutely no way to know that I was going to be right. He gave up his entire safety net and put 100% of his effort to getting on Wall Street. And, and he did in spades to the point where I can't even say his name. But, um, you know, that that equity of having somebody that believes in you and he had reason to believe that I knew because I'd run the number one fund in the world. Mm-hmm. And then I've been around a lot of billionaires and I've seen what a leveraged career looks like. And I think the other interesting thing for coaches is, is your coach still doing it now? So right now I'm a fractional COO, right? Right now I invest in private companies. So I'm still doing all of the things I'm advising people to do right alongside them. I love that. And it's very important to listen to people who are practicing what they preach. And I think that almost should go without saying, except that people do that in in a negative way. And, and they don't follow the advice of people who are actually still in the trenches. And so you are in the trenches, you're doing the work, you are still learning, which is what makes you such a valuable coach as well. So can you tell us, um, you are the COO of Competitive Storytelling. Tell us a little bit more about that. And then how can somebody reach out to you? What do you have to offer and give to them if they're interested in learning more about how to really scale and grow their career, being in a position to, um, as you said here, break in, build equity, and break out. Yep, yep, the three Bs. Um, so competitive storytelling, my my boss, Robbie Crabtree, was a prosecutor, went in 102 jury trials and realized that the story was the thing that was winning, not the facts, to the point where he would have somebody, I mean, he would have someone dead to rights on a, on a DUI video, you know, the, the breathalyzer, he'd have all the data on his side. And the jury would say, oh, but he seems like such a nice boy. <laughs> he didn't mean it. <laughs> and and he would lose. And so he realized that like the facts were not going to win and the story wins. And he developed a lot of techniques that are far more thought through and scientific than what's used in the startup world. And then he took them to the startup world to, and so he's a venture partner with Antler, um, as well as, as well as he's partnered with um, Alex Ohanian 776, which is uh, Serena Williams' husband. Mm. And um, anyway, so he's partnered with several venture firms and, and just teaches founders how to tell a story like a world-class storyteller, like a Steve Jobs, in order to attract capital, talent, and customers, um, to be able to then get that world-class idea out and change the world. So that's what we that's what we do at Competitive Storytelling, and um, and then and then in terms of what I do on the so I I'm a fractional COO there. As as and I have a small fractional COO service that I do, because what I found is at about the six month mark, I've organized so many things that people get a little frustrated that I'm not doing enough work. So then I just created the six month offer. 
to come in and organize the company and then go on retainer. So that's that's a separate thing. And then for, for the coaching, I basically um, have an offer where I come up with your personal plan. So, you know, look at your personal situation and then and then map out the next five years and and kind of deliver that to you. And then I'm building out a mastermind where like minded people will be making that move and I will be adding uh, partnerships with uh, recruiters to make sure that you can make that transition. I love how forward thinking this is. You're taking tremendous experience and you're saying, how can I help people? to really be able to do this in their own life. And it's powerful to be able to have options for how to serve them with a mastermind, with also being able to have the coaching with the six month offer instead of lifetime. So that's fantastic. Keep up the work that you're doing, Emmy. It's been really a pleasure to talk with you today and to glean from your experience because it's not often we get to hear that kind of a story. And often I mean, we talk with people who are, who have started from the ground up in an entrepreneurship type of role, but you went through the ranks as somebody through a career path while well, investing through career, then over towards the startup and, and partnership space. And it's really fascinating to hear the learning that you've had along the way and the tremendous power of that, the advantage that it's given you. Thank you very much. I love being on the show and it was great to learn more about what you're doing as well. That's awesome. Well, Emmy Sobieski, thank you so much for being with us today. How can somebody reach out and find you? Is it, what's the best way for them to find you? The easiest way to find me is actually on LinkedIn. Um, I have uh, just under 51,000 followers there, but I, I answer my DMs directly. So that's the easiest way to reach me. And then if you want to learn more about, about me and about the book and about any of the classes I have or whatever, uh, you can go to emmysobieski.com. And that also the same thing routes into that same exact website is 100mil.careers. So it just depends which is easier to remember. That's awesome. And for somebody who's looking for your last name spelling, that's, well, M-E-E-M-M-Y, Sobieski, S-O-B-I-E-S-K-I. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Emmy, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. It's been a pleasure talking to you and gleaning from your experience. And if you are listening to the show and you have questions for Emmy, reach out to her. If you have questions about infinite banking or about keeping and controlling more of the wealth that you have so that you can build a legacy that lasts, reach out to our team as well at themoneyadvantage.com. I would also encourage you to remember in closing, success leaves clues. And Emmy has proven this very, very well. So remember or follow the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business that you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com. 
or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.